welcome to another this pretty special episode we got going on here today we have a special guest a very special guest our first non-guilt-based guest <laughs> filmmaker uh, stroke survivor stroke uh, advocate just all around good person maggie widom hey maggie hello hi maggie. thanks for having me no, thanks. Thank you. Like I said, you reached out. You've been listening here and there, and that's awesome. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think your podcast is very cool. Thanks. We've been having so much fun. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I gave a very, very brief overview. Uh, starting with Filmmaker, you have a documentary coming out next year, is it? Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, so... What exactly is your documentary about? So it's called The Great Now What? And it's about my life uh, as a stroke survivor. I had a stroke in 2014, a massive brainstem stroke caused by a cavernous angioma, which is a blood vessel malformation. And uh, it was totally life-changing. I was on a ventilator for 12 days in intensive care for almost three weeks and then acute care and then in a rehab hospital for five weeks and uh, totally changed my life. I was 33 when it happened and I was otherwise super healthy and active and fit and did not know that I had this malformation in my brain. And uh, I was engaged and I was going to graduate school and thought I was going to be an actor and a director and a producer in my life. And I kind of thought I had my life on track. And then two days into Christmas break in the first, after the first semester of school, I had a headache and like 48 hours after that, I checked myself into the hospital because I didn't know what was going on. And I was having balance problems and, uh, 48 hours after that, I was on a ventilator and I had a brain surgery. And so it was very sudden and very traumatic. And I'm now six years out from it. And at about a year and a half into my stroke recovery, I saw a documentary called The Crash Reel, which is about traumatic brain injury. And stroke and traumatic brain injury are really similar. And so this film is something I would recommend to everyone listening, and it's about a young man who's an aspiring Olympic athlete, and he's a professional snowboarder, and he gets a traumatic brain injury seven weeks before the Vancouver Olympics and totally changes his life, and he can't be a professional snowboarder anymore. And so the film follows his life for the next two years and kind of what the fallout is. And I saw that film and I was like, I want to make a film about my life and about what happened to me. And so it's in process right now. And we hope that it will be finished and hopefully be available to the public in 2022 or maybe 2023. Yeah, I guess it's hard to commit to any timeline these days. Eh? Right. The pandemic kind of threw a big wrench in our plans. <laughs> <laughs> But it is still coming. So the documentary is it's mostly like it's it's your life story. Is that that's kind of how it's gonna be? Yeah. I would say it's 
it's it's kind of about my life story, but it's also kind of in a broader sense about what it's like to become disabled, especially as a woman in American society and, and what it does to your sense of self and self-worth. And there's a significant discussion in it about your aesthetic appeal as a woman and what happens when mm. you're visibly disabled versus not visibly disabled. And so I, I, the film is a lot of conversations that I have with other disabled women about their experiences in life. And we talk about disability and sexuality and disability and, you know, how society views you and, and the worth of your life. And so it's a lot of like, it's an inquiry, I would say, about like what, now what, right? That's why it's called the great now what, um, because life is totally and irrevocably changed. And so, but I'm still alive. I'm still here. So now what? Yeah. <laughs> there, there's, there's no script for life going forward. So you have to write one. Right. And that's an enormous challenge. I, I, I think you would be the, the first disabled person th that I'm going to have an in-depth conversation with um, who has an acquired disability, strangely enough. But I find the circumstance of there being a before disability and an after to be a very strong distinction between my and Tony's experience and yours. Um, and I would imagine it's uh, quite a hurdle to sort of move forward uh, with your disability and try to understand it and, and, and frame it in a way that you can um, heal to some extent, not to overcome the disability itself, but to make a life after the event and to, to avoid sort of drawing parallels constantly with your former, with your former self or ruminating in an, in a non-constructive way. Um, and like before this podcast, I listened to uh, your appearance on another uh, stroke survival podcast. And I was really affected by your ability to speak with clarity to your your situation um and there's a, a number of uh like your like artistic endeavors like um i i thought were really cool thank you you talked about uh one sort of exhibit i guess where you create where you uh try to relate your experience with chronic pain uh by like uh illustrating it uh, with with dolls, can can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have significant chronic pain that is nerve pain caused by brain damage. So it's in the whole left side of my body, from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes, um, is constantly burning and tingling, and sometimes like crushing, squeezing sensation and Nerve pain is really difficult to treat, and I've tried a lot of medications that don't help. And uh, so I found myself constantly trying to describe to people like doctors and therapists and family and friends about how my body felt. And I felt like they weren't getting it and that I needed to visualize it. And so I would take a Barbie doll and I would make it look like my body felt and then I would show it to these people. And then I felt like maybe they could get it a little better. 
And it was also cathartic for me because I think that artistic expression is a way to deal with trauma. Mm-hmm. And if I could like externalize this internal feeling somehow, then I could feel less misunderstood by society. And um, I found that a lot of people resonate with those Barbie dolls. And I, I do a lot of public speaking um, about stroke and I talk about my story and about pain and stuff. And and the teaser video for my documentary, which is on the website, thegreatnowwhat.com, has kind of the construction of these Barbie dolls in it. And that video, a lot of people with chronic pain who are not stroke survivors have said that video really touched them because in the video, it talks about how pain is invisible and that people don't believe you or people don't want to, doctors don't want to treat you because they don't get it and they don't realize what kind of uh, situation you're in. You said that when you made the dolls, it was to try to explain what you were feeling to the doctors. Did it actually work? Did they understand it? And would it help you in your treatment? I think to a certain extent, yes. I think it helped them understand better, which then helped me feel more heard. Mm-hmm. And that was helpful. I mean, in the end, so far, we haven't found a way to treat my pain. And so it is there. It's 24-7. Um, but just the idea that these doctors could understand a little better and have some more empathy and compassion for me was extremely helpful. Just to have that outlet and to have the opportunity to be better understood from from that art, uh, I imagine would be a huge relief in some in some way. Yeah, absolutely. And I also I've done various kinds of art. The Barbie dolls are definitely a big one. And I also because I was an actor before, I had this uh, headshot, which is like a something you would take to auditions and give to agents and stuff when you audition and it's like, this is who you are. It's got your resume on the back and it's your calling card when you're an actor. And so I had this, this headshot that was a really beautiful picture of me. And uh, my stroke caused facial paralysis in the right side of my face. And so the right side of my face doesn't move at all anymore. And so I look at this picture and just feel so sad, (laughs) just like devastated and it made me really angry. And I I started to like disassemble it and reassemble it in another attempt to like externalize this feeling that I am not okay. I may look okay. My body may look the way it used to, but it feels and behaves totally differently. And my soul is not okay. And so those collage pieces with the headshot, that's another way to that I used art to try and communicate to the world what my situation was. I think there's also something to be said about um, when you are able to express yourself creatively like that, people kind of naturally give you a bit more credit because I'm sure uh, once you acquired your disability, you kind of touched on how people will treat you differently than they would have before. And so your ability to create like some interesting and thought-provoking and even just relatable ways to uh, to demonstrate what you're going through and to 
kind of express your experience. I think people see that and it just helps them see you as a person again or more than they might have before that. Because like, uh, I'm sure this is very real to you, but disability is one of the few, if not the only minority that you can join at any time accidentally. Absolutely. Yeah. And you were talking about you and Jamie have had their your disabilities from the beginning of your lives, right? And so, and I encountered mine when I was 33, when I'm supposedly a fully formed adult, right? <laughs> so, right. Um, and it was like hitting a brick wall. Like it was astonishing to me, astonishing how differently I was treated in society and how suddenly it was like I didn't exist anymore. Like people didn't see me at all. I mean, for the first couple of years there was like psychologically super difficult to deal with, you know, people won't look at you because they're, they pity you or because they're uncomfortable because of how you look and having not been used to that at all, having not had to deal with that when I was like a kid or adolescent or anything, when I encounter it as an adult, it's like shocking to me. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to make my film because I'm like, this experience is, um, it is something. <laughs> and I want to <laughs> talk to the world about uh, about it. Do you feel like that's the reason you got into the advocacy work that you do is simply because you're like, how is this? Because like you said, you were thrust into it. Did you have any prior experience with disability or did you know anyone who was disabled before that or were you just kind of thrust into this new world? Well, I would say I had some, but it didn't really touch me deeply in my life. I was a caregiver for a guy with CP um, in, my, in my college years and he and I became pretty close and he's still a friend of mine and you know, I helped him with his daily care and we went out and did things and I would take him to events and, you know, do all kinds of things that you need done in, in your day um, when you're disabled and you can't move yourself. Um, so I had that experience, but but the experience of becoming my disabled myself was like monumentally earth-shakingly different, you know, and I thought about that guy quite a, quite a lot when I was in intensive care and other people were moving my body because I couldn't move it myself. What were your thoughts? Were you like, is this what people are going through the whole time? Or were you like, maybe like, I need to reach out to these people that I knew to see if I can do like, what was going through your head during all that? I can't even imagine. I mean, for the beginning of it, I was just like, you know, screaming in my mind, help me, someone help me, someone yeah. fix this. Because yeah. I think that we have this idea in Western society that Western medicine can fix you, mm -hmm. um, whatever's going on. And someone like me who comes into the hospital with a hemorrhagic stroke, you can't actually do anything like there's a clot busting medication, but that's only for ischemic strokes, which are most strokes. And that's where you have a blockage in the blood vessel. But 
that was not the kind of stroke I was having. So there was actually nothing they could do except watch me. And eventually the brain surgery was necessary, but you know, not until it got really, really, really bad where it was like, she's going to die if we don't do this. So because brain, brain surgery is so risky that it has to get to a certain point where it's like, this is the only option. So at the beginning, it was just so disorienting and terrifying that I was just like, help me, help me, help me, help me, someone do something. Um, but I did reconnect with my friend with cerebral palsy later on, you know, eight months later and, and talked to him about what it was like for me in the ICU. And, you know, now that I'm several years out, I am a huge proponent of disability rights and disability pride. And I perform with a theater company that only casts actors with disabilities here in Denver, Colorado. And uh, I just think it's so awesome what they do because I feel like our society is constantly telling us that we're worthless people, you know, that we're a drain or that we're only, you know, worth pity or concern or something like that. And this, the theater company, they, they put you on stage and they make you shine. And it's like, you go to a show with this company, it's called family theater company spelled with a P H um, P H A M A L Y. And it's like, it's a good show. It's a great show. And it's not like a good show for a bunch of disabled people. (laughs) It's like a great show, period. The fact that you were able to, I mean, from my perspective, looking at you and talking to you, you were definitely able to adjust very well. And so that's, that's really great to see. But I wonder, like, was there an inciting moment or something that you can look back and think on that helped you? make that adjustment or was it just like a grind over the past number of years where you've slowly gotten better at it was was there like one incident that you can think of or some person well i would say you know we're talking six and a half years almost after it happened and so i do seem very well adjusted now but it was not easy getting here and uh it was a difficult difficult uh path for me and part of part of my film is about how difficult that path has been. And I would say that a big kind of eureka moment, it, I would say on the whole, it's just like the days become weeks and the weeks become months and the months become years and you you get used to your new life and you learn how to appreciate your new life. But like there was a a eureka moment when I watched the crash reel. And I was like, I don't want to hide anymore, you know, because when I saw that film, I saw the power of being open about your story and being open about your struggle. And I was like, okay, up until that point, I I was like ashamed and sad and, you know, in my apartment and I didn't want to see anybody. And and then I was like, okay, I'm going to open this story up to the whole world. I'm going to show everybody what happened to me and I'm going to make a film about what happened to me. So it's not just my friends and family. It's like the whole world, hopefully. And 
my hope is that every stroke survivor in the world will see it. And that's a lot of people. <laughs> Before uh, your stroke, you were uh, a performer, like you were an actress, right? Or uh, you were going to school for acting. Mm-hmm. So is this film an effort to, tr- to carry that forward, to stay within the realm of theater and storytelling? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's about me getting back on stage with this company, Family Theater Company, and what that process is like. Because after my stroke, I was so ashamed and sad and, and I felt so disfigured and ugly and I didn't want to be on stage anymore. And so the story of the film is partly about getting on stage again and feeling like I want to be on stage again. Yeah, Jamie and I have talked about that a little bit where we've both, even though, like we've said, we both have had our disabilities from birth. um, And although our experiences are different, like mine is degenerative, so it's constantly evolving and changing. Jamie's, uh, you know, is a little bit more stable than that. So we, we do have different experiences, but we've both had times or periods in our lives where we've sort of tried to hide or tried to, I guess the ableist in us has tried to pretend we're less disabled than we are rather than just kind of accepting it. And I think for both of us, this podcast has been some form of accepting it and just kind of digging in and uh, it's almost like a form of therapy, to be honest. It, it feels like therapy. The end of every episode feels like um, like a, a major weight sometimes lifted off the shoulders for whatever reason. Yeah, I feel like it's because we're we're working through and trying to confront our disabilities via how the rest of the world sees us, and like you know, popular culture is a pretty good indication of that. It, like I I go through waves of uh, ableism and. And I, I, I guess like embarrassment, almost like the, the pressure, the pressure to work toward normal um, is constant. Uh, even if you have around you like an ecosystem of people who are empathetic and understanding, um, because it's like it's it's hard to it's hard to explain disability to other people. And like the rhythm of your life is ultimately different. There are milestones that you may not reach the way that you hope or when you hope. And so your life, and I find especially after university and like uh, adolescence and everything, it's like your your life takes on a completely different path from your peers. Like, And I find I wrestle with that kind of like on a daily basis. And my friendships with other disabled people and this podcast with Tony and conversations like this sort of keep me grounded to to an extent. And it's all because we're we're trying to do what you do, which is just sort of uh, find concise and effective ways of communicating our struggle. And usually it's through humor. Like by now, I don't know if you've noticed, but our, our podcast uh, is can be quite juvenile at times. <laughs> you know, we like to make light of ourselves and, and our opinions and feelings toward the media we consume. And I, maybe that is a coping mechanism, but I think it's fairly healthy. Yeah, well, it's definitely a coping mechanism for me. You know, if I'm not laughing, then I don't want to be crying. Like, that's really what it comes down to. But like like you said, Jamie, Maggie, the, the way that you've been able to 
embrace your your new what you call a new normal, which is such a hilarious phrase these days, because everyone is throwing around the phrase new normal. And your new normal was, you know, six and a half years ago when you had to adopt to adapt to a new normal of your ability levels and uh, I'm guessing like your relationships with the people around you and just like everything became a new normal for you. So new normal. I really do not like that phrase. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of tossed around all the time to stroke survivors um, at the beginning and it's just like, oh, you know, acceptance and you know, this is your new normal. And you hear that from people in the medical community, your friends and family. And I find it so dismissive. And I think that acceptance is kind of a flimsy way to describe what is happening to a person after a stroke. And I, I prefer the term reconciliation Uh, and recalibration, that it's like your whole life has changed and you got to reconcile yourself with that fact. And that is not an easy thing to do. And I feel like acceptance doesn't do it justice. And so the same thing with new normal, it's like, okay, yes, life is different, but new normal is kind of a saccharine way to put it. And so the pandemic starts and it's like, oh, it's just a new normal. (laughs) And I'm hearing that and I'm like, yeah, how does it feel to hear that tossed at you now? Oh, it's just, you know, new normal, deal with it. And I'm like, it's not, it's not easy, is it? It's not that simple. You had um, another YouTube video uh, where you discuss what pandemic life uh, is like for a disabled person. Um, in that video, you 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 draw parallels that I, I think that I've tried to discuss with Tony on the podcast before, which is that COVID has kind of created this phenomenon where the rhythms of the lives of able-bodied people have become to resemble that of the disabled. Mm-hmm. And I find sometimes like the, the the stress or strain placed upon them, like I I feel for them a lot, but at the same time, like it's very much like what the rhythm of disabled life is for us i mean and i and i don't mean that in a sense to belittle like you know uh people who've been sick with the illness but more like what uh, social isolation has done and it's really interesting to me yeah i would totally agree with that and that um video that we did it's on the website it draws parallels to having a stroke and going through the pandemic and i think there are so many similarities and at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, I can do this. I can do this isolation yeah. <laughs> um, because I've been doing it already for a while. Yeah. And I remember thinking that and, and also like trying to have compassion for people to whom it was totally new and, mm. and devastating for them because they used to have the lifestyle I used to have before my stroke, which was, you know, just like happy-go-lucky, carefree, out and about, doing everything, having fun. And that it was extremely hard. It was heartbreaking to lose that lifestyle. But honestly, this pandemic is here to teach us something. 
And I know it's been incredibly hard on people and a lot of people have died and that is a real tragedy. But also it has shown us some very useful things. And I think for disabled people in particular, I really hope that this pandemic is going to help the disabled community move forward in their lives because like so many people have been pushed out of their jobs or had to drop out of school because they were told that the accommodation of working from home or studying from home just wasn't possible. And clearly it is (laughs) when the rest of the world needs it. Clearly it is. And so uh, I hope it stays this way. No kidding. That is so true. It's uh, so frustrating in retrospect. Yeah, well, it, I, I agree. It's super frustrating, but I mean, the silver lining is that I think it is giving people more perspective for the future. And like like you just said, Maggie, the, the idea that so, so many things have been rapidly accommodated so that you can work from home and do things remotely and just in a short amount of time. So if we continue that, I think that it's definitely going to level the playing field or, you know, give people more equal opportunities to find work and to find ways to be more involved, even if they have a harder time leaving their house or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like to a certain extent, people who aren't disabled are getting a taste of the disabled homebound experience. And, you know, so many people in the general public felt like their lives were closing down with the pandemic. And I found that my life opened up a tiny bit and people are kind of shocked to hear that, but it's like, you know, I can go to the Denver film festival uh, in 2020 because it's virtual and I couldn't get over to the physical theater um, in years past but this year I can go. And that's a way that my life has opened up. And so I really hope that for events like that, they're going to have a hybrid option, a virtual option going forward because man, has it done something for accessibility. This is kind of goofy and anecdotal, but one small consequence of uh, uh, work from home is that um, like the, the campus where I work, it's like a, a telecom in Northwestern Ontario, and it's like a small campus. And we would frequently schedule meetings in very inaccessible venues for whatever reason. <laughs> um, and it was always so frustrating for me because I'd have to plan out a half day in advance, like my route to the meeting place. And now that we've uh, gone remote, I can attend meetings in five in five seconds, no problem, just like anyone else and not have to worry about the logistics of my power chair surmounting some sort of awful lip uh, before you enter the uh, auditorium or whatever. And like, just super convenient. Like I wish I had this option when we went to Carleton, you know? Yeah. Cause there's so many campus buildings that were such a pain in the ass and you would, you'd fight with the uh, center for students with disabilities to have the class moved. And oftentimes you wouldn't succeed uh, cause majority rule. I think the only industry that it's, negatively affected is the pants market because nobody's <laughs> buying them anymore. <laughs> um, Maggie, I wanted to ask, like, um, and, and I'm kind of being a little cheeky with a slow segue here, but do you find yourself 
more closely looking at social media and pop culture representations of disability after you survived your stroke? Are you watching movies or listening to any sort of media with a different perspective? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, and that's been a big question of mine. And it's a question I I talk about in the documentary is like, how do we look at disabled people in popular culture? In my experience now, it's a disabled person. Am I represented anywhere? Is that representation accurate or fair um, or kind? You know, and mm. and I think the answer is a resounding no. Um, <laughs> and that's another reason I'm making my film is because so often I feel like in popular culture we are looking at a disabled person and looking at their story and viewing them with a certain amount of judgment or pity or revulsion. <laughs> uh, it's, it's never very good, in my opinion, the representation of disabled people and that it's always external looking at them. So uh, my film is from the inside, looking mm -hmm. at my perspective out at the world. Yeah, it's really, really uncommon uh, to find media for disability by disability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've we've covered a couple examples of that, but uh, it, it really doesn't seem like we are at the place where that's really happening. It's definitely not mainstream. And I think that is where a lot of the controversies are coming from when you, you know, people see a representation of disability on screen that doesn't feel like authentic to them is because, you know, there's so few good representations that when there is one, you just, you want it to be you, you know, you want it to be the closest thing you can get to just looking in a mirror because otherwise it feels like they're forgetting about you again. Yeah. And like, I've, made it a point to watch lots and lots of movies and television that supposedly tell disabled stories uh, or have disabled characters. And that's one of the reasons I came across your podcast and liked it so much. Um, and I feel like <laughs> the entertainment industry is doing a terrible job, yeah. seriously terrible job. Um, and then a film like Crip Camp comes along, that documentary about the disability rights movement in the U.S. And I'm like, holy cow, like how incredible is that film? Right. And how inspiring in a good way, not in an inspiration porn kind of way, but <laughs> yeah. in, an, in a really, truly uh, gravitationally inspiring way. <laughs> I'm such a fan of that documentary. Oh, it was so good. I've watched it so many times. I feel like every every minute of that movie is crowd pleasing. Like there isn't yeah. a moment where you're not like happy or or related with like the the representation and I, I, yeah, it's just like a completely new it, it's like in its own sort of tier. Yeah. yeah. And that film has two directors and one of the directors is Jim Lebrecht who is one of the main characters at the camp, the guy with spina bifida. And I'm like, yeah, that movie is so phenomenal. 
because there is a disabled person in charge. There's a disabled person with creative control and power telling the story. And that's why it's so good. And that authenticity is constantly self-evident, I think, uh, almost for any viewer, whether you're able-bodied or disabled. There's a sense that it's coming from a real place and that it's telling new stories. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a movie yet where you felt like they've captured your experience? Because I I can't think of a movie that I've seen, um, at least off the top of my head, that's about a stroke survivor. No, um, you know, there aren't a ton. And and I would say there's a couple of documentaries, but there isn't really one that I felt the story well, which is another reason I'm making my film. Yeah. Um, there was a French film that came out in 2004 called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly that tells the story of a stroke survivor who has locked-in syndrome which is where you're cognitively intact, but your entire body can't move um, and you can't speak and you can only blink your eyes. And so this man, this happened in the 90s, his name was Jean-Dominique Bobby, and he was the editor-in-chief of Elle magazine in France. And he was like 40, he was at the top of his game um, in his life, and all of a sudden... He has a brainstem stroke and, um, and he's locked in and he wrote a book. He wrote a book by blinking and the therapist would um, take his dictation. And so he wrote a book letter by letter, word by word, sentence by sentence. And it is one of the best books I've ever read. And it's called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And they made it into a film in 2004 and so it it really, it's from his point of view and it's a narrative film and it's just incredibly beautifully shot. Like the cinematography is just gorgeous. And um, watching that film reminded me of my experience in the ICU and I would recommend it for sure. Yeah, it's actually on our list. Uh, I didn't even really know what it was about. Uh, I just knew that it was a relevant movie to our podcast. So that's that's awesome to hear that it's like actually worth watching. Yeah. Because uh, Jamie and I have kind of in the last uh, couple weeks of this podcast, we've been getting a little frustrated because the movies we've been watching just really feel like they keep missing the mark. Yeah, there's been a definite drought of like meaningful or creative uh, disability films lately. Yeah. And we've done, um, I think this is our 15th episode. And I think uh, of the 15 episodes, only two of the films that we covered were made for and by disabled people. And, you know, there were a number of, I guess, good or at least entertaining films in that roster, but it's kind of a disappointingly low percentage, you know? Yeah. Well, and in this film, it's it stars an able-bodied actor, but I feel like the source material is the book, and the book was written by the stroke survivor. And so, again, it's like who has who has creative power? It's it's the directors, the producers, the writers. And so, if you're writing a story and you're a disabled writer, and that story gets turned into a film, God willing, it's going to be a good representation. Yeah. Yeah. 
should we segue then? Because you came on this podcast knowing full well that we would make you watch a movie. And so the movie was Music by Sia. Again, another movie that is about disability, but not by disability. And uh, when you when we were talking about movies to watch, you suggested this movie. Was there a reason that you thought of it? Uh, yes. Um, I follow disability Twitter pretty closely. And definitely last November, when the first trailer dropped for this film, there was some serious outrage about it. <laughs> And so I read a little bit about it and I was like, oh, this is coming out in February. Um, I should watch it because that's what I'm trying to do is try and watch almost every, if not every, um, story that's supposedly about a disabled person. And so this was definitely on my list. And when we talked about what kind of episode we should do, I was like, let's watch the new Sia film. (laughs) Yeah. So we did. I never like to take the lead on these because... I would like to see how you guys feel first, but what was your overall impression of the movie? Okay. uh, Should we do like a a one sentence uh, gist of our opinion first and then elaborate from there? Okay. So my, my one sentence review of the movie is that it is really bad, (laughs) very tone deaf (laughs) and Mm -hmm. kind of offensive. Um, So yeah, I would say the same thing. Uh, It was incredibly, uh, misguided uh, i i don't know if it was uh necessarily well intended um the okay now this is not one sentence comma <laughs> place <laughs> i feel like uh the disability component of it did not need to be there and in the absence of that it might have been in better taste uh but elsewise it was very uh, it displayed very poor judgment on the part of Sia. Yeah, so the movie's basically, it's basically an album. Like Sia wrote 10 new songs and then turned it into a movie. And the movie is starring her friend who is not on the spectrum, uh, but the movie is about uh, a person on the autistic spectrum. And I feel like I kind of flip-flopped my opinion of the movie the whole time while watching it. Because on one hand, I always appreciate when someone wants to try to play a part far from their own experience, because I do think that requires empathy, and it's good to empathize with someone outside of your personal experience. But to me, the performance was distracting the whole time. Like I was constantly looking at her and I was just kind of trying to find ways to be okay with her performance, but it was never believable enough to just to fully immerse me. And to feel comfortable while watching. Yeah. Yeah. And the movie has all these like musical interludes, which, you know, they're kind of beautiful pieces, but in them, Maddie Siegler, who plays the titular character music, uh, she is very clearly not disabled in those musical interludes. And so it's like a reminder over and over and over again. You're watching someone who is not actually disabled. And, you know, that's why it's like feels 
Um, bordering on mockery. My experience with autism is super anecdotal. I've known, you know, a, a handful of people on the spectrum, including people who are nonverbal. And so I think that Sia got some, I, I think she did some research and I think that she did get some guidance. I don't think she went into this completely blind and just wrote a movie, but I also don't think she really like did enough to really try to capture an authentic experience. And I, I don't even think that was maybe her goal because from what I know about what was her name, Maddie Ziegler, mm-hmm. was her friend uh, before the movie started. And they've worked together on projects in the past. So I think they kind of just were like, hey, let's do a movie together. But then it leaves me with the question that I didn't answer. Did she have a reason to make it about autism or to use a character on the spectrum? What, does she have a personal connection? If she did have a reason, I don't think it came across in the film all that effectively. Yeah. Supposedly it was like a love letter to caregivers and to the autistic community, but I think it kind of failed on both of those. The uh, Ziegler, Ziegler the, uh, the actress that plays the uh, autistic character, she's uh, quite a talented uh, dancer. Like you could say that at the very least. And uh, she did also perform Elastic Heart in 2015 on SNL. And uh, was apparently like the most watched like SNL musical number in over 20 years, you know, which is like no small feat or whatever. So the 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 nature of their sort of like creative affiliation is clear. But again, I don't really know why um, she needed to feature like an autistic caricature in this film, um, because she does sort of use music as the um, as an object or like something that. The actual lead character in the film, uh, which is the sister of music, named uh, what's what's her name again? Zoo. Zoo. Yeah, Zoo. Is it really Zoo? Yeah. Uh, played by Kate Hudson. After music's caretaker dies, Zoo has to move in with her and figure out how to look after her and overcome some addiction issues. And so, music becomes like emblematic of the responsibility necessary for Zoo to take in order to become an adult and to grow as a person. And just to use disability as a prop in that fashion is really disappointing uh, because I don't think like music has really lent any kind of dimension, except maybe that she has an inner life that the film attempts to explore through its musical numbers. And I'm not really sure that it ever really achieves that. Yeah, the the musical interludes were definitely my favorite part of the movie. There were some bangers, like some of the songs were legitimately fun. And there's some imagery in those music videos that that stays with you. Yeah, that difficult to forget, you know. So, so I mean, she is definitely talented, and the people that she chooses to work with are as well. I think it was the first performance from Kate Hudson that I actually cared about. I know she was really talented. Um, in the film Almost Famous. Then she was kind of re- relegated to like uh, rom-com duty for the next 15 years. And so th- this movie, I think she tries to show her acting chops. And unfortunately, I think the I, I, I think it's the wrong film to, to try to break out of uh, that uh, typecast. 
I know one thing people got really upset about was uh, how they used the physical restraint against uh, music whenever she was, you know, like, quote, having an episode. And uh, I, I know in my experience, and this experience was when I was in elementary school, so a long time ago, but I know someone who was on the spectrum was nonverbal, and when they were, quote, having an episode, the caregiver would roll him up in one of those gym mats and just, like, lie their full body weight on top of them. And that was their therapy at the time. And so, again, like, it's hard to really know how to feel because I am not on the spectrum and I would never pretend to be knowledgeable about the spectrum, but I feel like you could like really hurt someone by doing that. Yeah. Apparently it's not the right way to deal with that kind of thing. And it used to be, but, but uh, you know, that practice was, discarded after a while and apparently you can get seriously hurt if you do this kind of restraint and uh supposedly Sia said she was going to cut that stuff from the film but the film that we just watched still has it in it yeah i don't know how you cut something from a movie these days like what do you just release it and hope that nobody sees the original version i don't know how that works but this this really just goes down to for me that same age-old argument that I I don't think I'll ever know what side of this argument I'm on of whether or not we should be only casting disabled people to play disabled people. But I think that they should have cast someone who at least was somewhere on the spectrum so that they could understand the experience well enough to portray it in a non-jarring, non-distracting way. Yeah. the uh, I guess the argument that the autistic community made towards the uh, on Twitter was that there are plenty of autistic performers who can dance. And so she could very easily have cast uh, like a, somebody on the autistic spectrum who is physically capable of the, the dance routines portrayed in the film, yeah. which is a reasonable argument. <clears throat> I would like say from like let's say hypothetically see as uh, music had cerebral palsy instead of autism it would have been really interesting uh for me um in the audience to witness how she could incorporate somebody in a manual chair for example with cerebral palsy into those dance routines because you know ultimately she's a very creative uh, choreographer and whatnot and solving that problem could have been fascinating to watch it would have been really cool and re- refreshing and new so to opt to instead cast somebody who's able-bodied feels kind of cheap. Yeah, and it's like Sia has worked with this dancer many times before, and she is an amazing dancer. But yeah, I just feel like it was really foolish choice. <clears throat> At the very least, a, a missed opportunity. Yeah. All right, to play devil's advocate, do you think her playing that role was able to give her a better... Uh, I don't know if appreciation is the right word, but a better understanding or more empathy towards the lives of people on the spectrum that maybe she wouldn't have thought of or been exposed to before. You mean Sia herself? Sia or or Ziegler? 
the way she reacted to the criticism on social media, it seemed to me like uh, adversarial, <clears throat> almost like, I, I mean, totally unnecessarily. So. Yeah. so I don't know, to be honest with you. Like, did you get that same kind of uh, vibe, Maggie? Yeah, I mean, Sia sounded very defensive on Twitter. Um, of course, I recognize that it's not easy to take criticism about your art, right? But she did make a bad choice. And even if Sia or Maddie Ziegler learned a certain lesson about autism by portraying this autistic character, you know, I would say that their personal growth is less important than giving an opportunity to an actually autistic performer and putting them in a big movie with Kate Hudson that's going to be seen by a lot of people. That's a very good point. Like to use disability as like a, almost like, like Jamie said, like a prop for your own journey. It's good, but you're right. It's not as important as someone's need to be actually represented by being actually put on screen. Yeah. And I think that definitely would have helped the production to have an actually autistic actor, but also in the storyline as the script existed, as we saw it, disability was a prop. You know, I feel like music, even though she's the uh, supposedly, you know, the person that the film is centered on and she's the person the title is named after she was still kind of a prop in the storyline and she's really there to help kate hudson learn a lesson and learn some responsibility which i find kind of tiresome this idea that the disabled person in the story is there to help the non-disabled person learn a lesson and become a better person I, i i feel like um and that is like a reality that a lot of able-bodied attendants have to come to terms with sometimes. I used to, uh, to find that a lot um, in my 20s at Carleton. Like there was this kind of like expectation that you'd be very appreciative for the execution of your care, but that doesn't really make sense. You know, like they're hired to be there and that's their job and the role that they need to play in order to enable you to live your life. And so there's this like, there's this there's these boundaries that like able-bodied attendants have to adjust to in in recognizing disabled people as like autonomous and us not being you know props for for their personal growth right and and it's not like you're so benevolent <laughs> because you're a caregiver you're not a freaking saint because you're a caregiver you know you're just helping me live my life and like don't think you're so great because <laughs> and that's not, I mean, that's not to trivialize the significance of caregiving and the types mm-hmm. of people that it takes to execute that job appropriately. Like there are some fundamentally amazing attendants that I've encountered in my life that I'm very grateful for on some level. But at the same time, it's like these things are reciprocal and uh, we're not props. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can be a good person who is a caregiver or a caregiver who is a good person but you don't have to be a good person to be a caregiver. Right. And I don't think you should like try and uh, determine your status as a person and your status as like a good person because you're a caregiver. Like they're not automatically tied to each other. Do you guys have any ideas of what would, well, besides the obvious one of casting someone with real lived experience, 
what else do you think would have made this movie better? Uh, another few passes on the script, probably. Uh, I still think the, the the disability component of the film didn't justify itself. So she might have just been better off making it a pure vanity project and just having it be a story of her recovery from addiction interspliced with musical interludes. Like, I don't know, like is, is this movie and its representation of disability um, better than no representation at all, given how harmful it could be? I don't know. Maybe that's a dumb question, but no, I see what you're saying. Like, was it worth going to this effort to make this propped up moral navigation of a story or could she have just used some other prop that was closer to her actual experience like she definitely used the disability in this movie for her own like moral teaching rather than to truly be able to empathize and connect with an otherwise super ignored group of people on the screen in some ways, it's this kind of weird fulfillment of our worst anxieties about how people see us, right? Yeah. Well, again, though, like if it was about CP or in my case, SMA, or you know, if 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 our stories were represented, it still wouldn't have felt good to see someone do. It wasn't a terrible job, but it was not good enough that it it was still distracting. It's still the whole time. All I was thinking of, like, was uh, why is this person playing this character? Like, why was this the choice? And that wasn't ever made clear. Yeah. I think it was just kind of a selfish choice on Sia's part that she's like, I want to work with this specific person and I'm in charge, so I get to decide. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I feel like it could have done a lot with an authentic representation. There's a, a short film that's nominated for an Oscar short live action film called feeling through, which I'd recommend you can go and watch it on the website, feelingthrough.com. And it's a short film about a deaf blind man uh, meeting a homeless teenager in New York city and the interaction that they have one evening. And the press that I see about this film, it's, it's a very good short film. And Marley Matlin is a, executive producer on it. And the press that I see about it constantly, constantly says, this is the first film with a deaf blind actor. And so like, that's like the calling card that they're putting out there. This is an authentically cast film. And so it's the thing that leads the description of it, you know, when it's on the nightly news, you know, some little segment about it, or when it's, when, uh, Whoopi Goldberg is talking about it on The View or something. It's like, mm-hmm. this little short film is nominated for an Oscar. And it's the first time that a real deafblind actor has played a part in a in a, in a a short film. And, and uh, so, like, I feel like it could have helped them market the film to say this is an authentic representation. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like the movie run that we watched. Same thing, you know, like... The reason we watched it was because we're like, wait, there's a real wheelie in the movie? Like, we have to watch it. <laughs> I lo- I really loved that film. I thought they did a good job. Yeah. I'm, yeah, sorry. Uh, that that would be the third. 
that would be the third in the 15 that we watched that had uh, like real an element of real disability in it it was very good as well like very subtle like doesn't really call attention to itself but the performance is so awesome from the lead in that movie if you guys if someone was going to tell your life story who would you want what actor would you want to play you well i have to say steve buscemi right jamie no, I was afraid you would. <laughs> Is it an a- actor um, that we're choosing like aspirationally or being realistic about who cl- more closely resembles us? Oh, I would say anybody you want. Okay, okay. <laughs> Aspirational, sure. Well, I mean, if we're talking realistic, of course, like Ryan Gosling, just because we look the same. <laughs> yeah, 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 good point. That'd be fun. No, he's actually... He obviously is a great actor, but he also has some pretty good comedic chops. And I feel like that'll be fun. I, I didn't actually think about that before right now. But my instinct is always to say someone like like Jim Carrey back, like, you know, 15 years ago. Because uh, I, I was always super inspired by his comedy and his physical comedy uh, and his, like, expressiveness. But I don't I don't think that's really how... I don't think that would be like an authentic representation of who I am. It's a really tough question. It is because there just aren't disabled actors out there. Jamie, you'd say Eddie Redmayne, right? (laughs) No, of course not. (laughs) I I wanted to be bold and say if I was to cast you, Tony, um, I would choose either Ethan Hawke or Edward Norton. I feel like Edward Norton would do you justice, but he might be a little bit too serious. He would nail the comedic angle. And Ethan Hawke is kind of like like effortless and like suave in a way. And he's very good at like naturalistic dialogue. I would take both, honestly. You like you take like the baby between them? Yeah, sure. Ed Hawk. <laughs> so Maggie, aspirationally, like I I really like John Hamm, mm-hmm. but realistically it would probably be Sarah Jessica Parker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I was thinking, uh, the, who's the guy from the social network? He played Lex Luthor in the Zack Snyder movies. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg. Mm. Oh, that's so true. If Jesse Eisenberg shaved his head. Which he does for Lex Luthor. And just sat down. He, he's got it. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie, flipping it back to you. Well, it's a Interesting question, you know, because like there's life before the stroke and there's life after the stroke and there's the transition of how I came to embrace my life after the stroke. And so I feel like this question of authentic casting is very tricky, you know, because it's like, what kind of story are you telling and who do you want to play it? But I always, when I was younger, I always thought that Claire Danes or Gwyneth Paltrow was the person I wanted to be like yeah i could see claire dance for sure i i could see gwyneth paltrow yeah i i love claire dean's excellent actress um i sorry maggie you said before and after i don't know if this is a uh, a silly question but do you do you consider before and after maggie to be two completely different people uh that's a great question and i would say no but kind of, <laughs> um, I guess, I guess, no. I mean, the thing about having a stroke is that so much 
from your life just falls away. And it's like the stroke is the initiating event. But then after that, maybe you have to drop out of school or you lose your job, you lose your career, you lose your marriage, maybe you lose your custody of your kids, maybe you lose all your money. And of course, your physical shape is changed and it's uh, it's a lot to lose. And it doesn't happen all at once, but it can happen over the course of several years that you feel at some point totally different than you were before, but it's like, what, what still exists? Because I am still alive, right? And I am still here. Um, but those things that existed before are not there anymore. So it's like, what is at the heart of me? <laughs> um, that's kind of a question that is in my film. And I would say I am still me, but it is significantly significantly different now your um exhibit where you modified your um your portrait shots uh like your stills from uh, your acting days it, is that out of um self-loathing or like a desire to almost like update those photos to make them more contemporary or consistent with how you see yourself now i don't know i guess i'm trying to figure out the nature of that exercise a little more? Well, I made those collages sort of in the period of time between a year and a half in and three and a half years in. And I actually used to have them on my wall behind me. There was a whole, there were maybe like 20 of them on the wall. And at a certain point, I was like, I'm going to take these down. I need to move on from this being so present in my life. And I feel like I had to do it at the time because I wanted to show, if I could, the the disorientation and the discombobulation and the shattered sense of my own self. But also, I don't feel that way anymore. I wouldn't say that that image represents me so much anymore. So there's been some progress then on, on that front to some mm-hmm. extent. Mm-hmm. Just kind of following up on Jamie's question about whether or not it's two separate people. If you you had complete creative control over your movie, would you choose two different actors to play the before and the after? Or would you use the same actor the whole way through? I think that's a really interesting question. Uh and a you know, a challenging question to answer, but A lot of what happened to me with my facial paralysis, I feel like you would need some serious CGI to make it work. You know, it's not necessarily something that an actor could do voluntarily. Um, But yeah, I think the question of of a person who's in transition from not disabled to disabled, that authentic casting how do you do how do you authentically cast that right because like if the person isn't disabled at the beginning of their story and you cast a disabled person as the person at the beginning is that authentic casting i think that's an interesting question to tackle because i don't exactly even know but i do think that a movie like sound of metal is an interesting film to look at. Like, have you guys watched that one yet? No, not yet, no. So it's the story of a man going deaf. And Riz Ahmed plays the 
main character and Riz Ahmed is not deaf. But as a storyline, it's him as a hearing person to him becoming a deaf person. And so it was actually a film that I liked. And and it, it, the, the fact that he wasn't a disabled actor didn't bother me at all <laughs> because the storyline of it and how they showed this transition that he's going through, I thought they did it very well. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I have an exactly clear answer about how to cast a story where it's someone in transition. Yeah. Maybe in some instances, it's not the casting that's important, but kind of like the creative direction and the 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 authorship element of the story, like where it's coming from and whose voice it's whose voice it is. Absolutely. And it's like, what kind of story is it? Is it a story where it's like this person should be pitied? This person, it's it's all tragedy all the time, 100 percent like. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, thank you. Um, yeah, really. <laughs> so, and and that film is not that. The, the final moments of that film are like awesome, <laughs> in my opinion. And I would be so curious to hear what you guys think of it when you see it. But like, yeah, I think it's so important who has creative control and who's writing these stories, directing these stories and producing these stories. Because like, um, yeah, I think that that is in some cases more important than authentic casting. Um, it's like, what is the story? What is the narrative? Is it an empowering narrative? Is it a positive narrative about disability? Is it a movie that is going to make me feel proud to be a disabled person when I finish watching it? Yeah. Recently, Jamie asked me, what makes a really movie? Like, what makes a movie about disability? At the time, my answer, I think, was basically how different the main character's experience feels from what we consider to be the average experience. But I, don't, I still don't have a fully defined answer because as we, as we do this podcast, you know, we've kind of already stretched the limit of what might or might not be considered a, a disability movie. So I'd be curious to, to know what you think about what makes a movie a disability movie. Wow. I mean, I guess, is it a story about disability? And is it a story that kind of doesn't take the very well-trod road of the past, you know, several hundred years of stories about disability? Or is it something new and different and better yeah. It also matters how it's received by disabled people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at. I think that's ultimately, uh, like Maggie, like you were saying, uh, it's not so much about who's in the movie. It's how the people who are meant to be represented by the movie feel about the movie. Mm -hmm. And whether you like the movie music by Sia or not, the majority that spoke out about it from the autistic community didn't like the movie. And so right there, it has missed the mark. If you lost the group of people that should have been your audience, then you didn't do a good enough job. 
There, there, I think in this day and age, uh, in the climate of social media, where everyone kind of has a voice and can partake in a given conversation, when a movie misses the mark, <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily have to be counterproductive. Like you can, you can hold up or you can pay attention to the conversation around what went wrong and how the creative people receive that information is very key and how they refactor that into their creative decisions going forward. But as Maggie said, it's not about the personal growth of Sia to some extent. Yeah. It's about not doing damage. It's not, it's about not doing damage to our collective understanding of minority experiences, I guess. But talking about music by Sia is a good thing, probably. Mm -hmm. And God willing, these people are going to try and do better next time. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, in terms of a learning experience, it was maybe not super great the way (laughs) it was received by Sia. Yeah, I think that if if Sia was a bit more receptive to the criticism... And said, you know what? That's fair. I I should have known about that, or I should have done more research. Um, and I think she tried to do that when she said, you know, I'm going to take out those physical restraint scenes. But ultimately, at the beginning, she seemed very defensive, and you know, it would have been a lot better. It would have been great, in my opinion, if she tried this movie and then just didn't do that good of a job and then apologize for it. I would have liked the movie a lot more. But the thing that really frustrated me was when people called her out for some of her mistakes, and she just got defensive. Yeah. I would have sympathized and empathized with her a lot more if she just admitted to those mistakes and, you know, made a pact with herself and herself and us to do better next time. When I first heard about this movie, I was like, really wanting to be excited about it because it's like I'm all about women having more opportunities in film and television right so Sia is making her directorial debut and it's centering an autistic character and I'm like man I really want to to like this film and there's such a potential for it to be good but misses the mark yeah should we wrap it up with a quick wheel breakers or how are you guys feeling? Sure. I'm game. All right. Who wants to start? Me? All right, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have one. I'll pitch it to both of you. So this round of wheel breakers. Wheel breakers. I get to have the power to make you both physically able in whatever way that means to you. And I'll give you your dream physical abilities with the one catch. To get this power, you also have to break out into song once every conversation. (laughs) So every time you are trying to make a point, It's not that you break into a song you've heard. It's more like a musical where you just start singing your conversation. Okay, so all of your replies like in a reciprocal conversation are sung, are, 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 why can't I talk right now? Yeah, they're sung. Okay. So like 
you get on the call with your boss at work and he's like, Jamie, I'm going to need you to update this file. And you just start singing about how you're going to do it. You're like, yeah, I'll for sure do your work for you. And you just start. It's like if you're in Mamma Mia 3 or... So is it is it any song, like any, any uh, new song that might suit the melody of the thing that I'm trying to say? Or do I have to make it, it... Does it have to be like a parody of an existing pop song? You're basically coming up with... Uh, new songs on the fly and and you're good at it don't don't let me uh or give you the power to be good at it so you're saying i could segue this into a career opportunity or some sort of creative endeavor yeah you're basically always on set of a musical and do i get to choose which conversation throughout my day is when i start singing or does it happen at random no it's impulsively all the time like it can be just like uh, a telemarketer calls you and you sing song, I'm not interested. I wouldn't actually mind that. I feel like that'd be a great defense mechanism against uh, like unwanted calls. Yeah. I, I would totally take that as well because I think people would find it charming. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, yeah, I would like to be, be better at parody. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll do it. All right. Well, it seems like I've done you both a favor <laughs> imagine if we could do a whole episode <laughs> of this podcast where we're we're singing that would be fantastic <laughs> i'm gonna start writing more parodies because i think the re- part of the reason that i thought of this was because we watched basically a musical but part of me is because i feel like i haven't done enough random breaking out in the song recently so i'll try to remedy that all right who wants to go next all right, so would you be able-bodied if you had to, anything that you wanted to do would actually take you 10 times as long to do and would be 10 times as complicated to do? So like mm-hmm. if it takes you 20 minutes or it takes you two minutes to brush your teeth, <laughs> then now it takes you 20 minutes and it's like there's like 20 steps involved. Just the idea of brushing your teeth for 20 minutes <laughs> is hilarious. But that's an hour or that's 40 minutes a day of just brushing your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you neglect your dental hygiene. Like it takes you like 10 minutes just to tie your shoes. Oh, welcome to my life. I mean, that honestly sounds like a disability in itself. Oh, okay. But Maggie, hold on. Does it take extra long because I'm just, I just move like glacially slow or is it because like the universe conspires to just make it that much more complicated to tie my shoes? The universe conspires. Okay. So he's not 10 times better at tying his shoes than everyone else. So am I frustrated by these, by this additional complexity or can it be fun potentially? Uh, I would say you're frustrated. (laughs) I mean, is it fun to brush your teeth for 40 minutes? (laughs) I don't know. I guess it depends how much you're into. You just start bleeding five minutes in. Oh, God. And you just have another 15 minutes to go. Well, it wouldn't necessarily have adverse effects. Like, you're not going to destroy your gums. But, like, (laughs) for some reason, because it takes five minutes just to put the toothpaste on the (laughs) toothbrush. Right. Yeah, it kind of sounds like my dad. Sometimes when he does the dishes, I'm like, like he'll wash the dishes 
before putting them in the dishwasher. And I'm like, well, you could just put them in the dishwasher or just not now. So I feel like it could be like that. And that's frustrating just to watch. So I don't think I would do it. I think that my my day would be so wasted. <laughs> Wait, does that mean I have to work for 400 hours a week? <laughs> I don't know about that. But like, if it takes you five minutes to get to work, I take it you're telecommuting now, but like... Yeah. <laughs> If it took you five minutes to get to work physically, then now it takes you an hour. And like, if there's only three turns involved, now there's 37 turns involved. I have to start logging onto a Zoom meeting an hour beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, there's no way I can do that. I think I, I, think I would do it. Because <laughs> I think... Because I think... That disability has in some vein given me like supernatural patience for certain kinds of bullshit. And so like the actual problem of disability is not that things take me forever. For me, I think it's more of shaping and managing the perception of disability for those around me and how it limits my potential as a person. So I don't care if I have to brush my teeth for 20 minutes. It's fine. But would you feel more able-bodied if it took you... 20 minutes to tie your shoes like just because you're doing it while standing i don't know i i suppose i am pretty self-conscious about not being able to tie my shoes but it, I, again that's like kind of idiosyncratic and not really that significant so wheel or no wheel i think i think no wheel no wheel meaning you would do it yeah i always confuse that with no deal but no wheel yeah me too <laughs> uh i'm curious maggie would you would you do it uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's not fair to ask you your own. The reason I thought about it is because it's how it felt after my stroke to do anything is that it was mm-hmm. took 20 times as long and was enormously frustrating and complicated. And, you know, things used to be easy and suddenly they weren't. So I was really struck uh, by one. Um, anecdote in the podcast episode that I listened to where you said that you were enormously frustrated by trying to ask your body to do something and it taking uh, way longer or your body missing the message and something else happening and just having there be a disconnect between your brain and your body. And I've, I feel like that to some extent, maybe to a lesser or a different extent describes cerebral palsy. Um, and it's always something that I've had difficulty explaining to my parents. Like, I don't know how many times I've gotten into like uh, unnecessary arguments with my dad, like as a teenager, and even sometimes as an adult now, where he'll ask me to do something with the left side of my body as opposed to my right out of like better posture or, you know, common sense. And I'll just get so angry at him, not because. Like, I disagree with him that I should use my left hand, but that he doesn't quite understand, even after 30 years, that it's just so fucking hard to do that. And that's not very straightforward. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I like using the house metaphor that it's like you live in a house and suddenly the house is radically changed. And now half of the switches and appliances in the house work totally differently. So like you turn on the living room light and the garage door opens <laughs> or you like flush the bedroom toilet and the garbage disposal turns on like weird. I love that. That's great. 
things. Yeah, I, and you just have to start remembering which light switch does which thing. <laughs> or maybe it switches because it's like it's not even consistent. It's not even like you can learn a new system. Right. Jamie, do you have one? I have one, but I don't know if, we, if we'll cut it or not. It's a little bit... Do you say that every time? I know. <laughs> you can be able-bodied, except that as an able-bodied person, you're kind of rude <laughs> in uh, like inconsequential, but ways that kind of add up. Like, for example, okay, the only two examples I could think of was you have bad conversational etiquette. Like you don't wait for your turn to speak. You quite often speak over the person you're talking to and it frustrates them to the point where they often exit the conversation. And when you go to restaurants, you constantly return your meal to the kitchen like two or three times. Uh, the other thing is uh, you, you, you fight with pedestrians on the bus for priority seating, even though you're not disabled. <laughs> wow. Are those the only three things or those are just examples? Those are examples of like rudeness. That you you like you you have to uh, follow through with, even though like in your mind and your heart, you know it's not okay. I don't know, Meg. You want to take this one? I don't know if I would do that one. I mean, <laughs> sending back food more than once in a restaurant—that's yeah, pretty bad. I've worked in my share of restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Fighting people for disabled seating when you're not disabled—like, wow. <laughs> That's pretty bad. So it's not a real breaker for you? You would not break out of your reel? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it would cost you like uh, countless first dates. It'd be really hard. Yeah. It's such a date deal breaker when uh, my date is rude to the waitress or waiter. That's such a turn on. I feel like if you've ever worked in customer service, like the very idea of that is just mortifying. Yeah, because that poor like like teenager to twenty something is just trying to make ends meet, and you're just berating them because you can because they're in a servile role, and I, I just don't understand it. Are you self aware in your hypothetical that you are rude? Yes. Oh yeah, that's even worse. It's like you know the film Liar Liar when Jim Carrey like knows yeah. he can't lie. <laughs> he can't be nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He gets the food and he loves it, but he's like, take it back. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no way. There's no way. All right, well, Maggie, I just want to say thank you so much for reaching out and coming on. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. I, I really, really appreciated talking to you and getting to know your story a little bit. To everyone listening, definitely go check out The Great Now What. And uh, the the family theater company, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So The Great Now What, we have a website, thegreatnowwhat.com. If you go there, you can learn a little more about the film. You can join our email list. We send an email about once a month. And hopefully the film will be available next year or in 2023. And we also have a Facebook page and an Instagram account and a Twitter account. They're all at the Great Now What on social media. And yeah, Family Theater is doing their first virtual show. So um, anyone from anywhere can watch. And it's original pieces that are based on interviews with frontline workers in the pandemic. And it's going to be available in the whole month of May. 
And basically you pay for a ticket, quote unquote, and that gives you a week of access to the show so you can watch it whenever it works for you. And uh, yeah, family, P-H-A-M-A-L-Y is the name of the company. You can go to family.org to learn more about them. I really don't know where I would be in my life without this theater company because it's been enormously gratifying and empowering to work with them. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I remember growing up, like, uh, drama was such an important part of me being able to come to, as you said, reconciliation with my disability. Uh, it really made me feel like I was just part of the team. And people definitely look at you differently when you are performing, I think. The, the fact that there, people are able to perform with other disabled people I think is really, really important. And obviously your documentary, The Great Now What, is going to be really, really great. I can't wait for us to be able to watch it and review it and maybe even have you on again to talk about it after it's come out. Absolutely, I'd love to. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much and uh, take care. Thank you. Thanks so much, Maggie. We really do appreciate it. Bye, everyone. 